1: My name is Lee Tran, and I'm the author of the memoir, House of Six.
2: Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you for coming on today, Lee. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to Thank you? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure <laughs> to have you here. It's really an honor.
1: That's such an interesting question um, because I think for a large portion of my life, I've tried to ask myself that very question um, because I am actually seven eighths Dioula. I was born in Vietnam, but I'm seven eighths Dioula, um, and you know, my book explores a lot of. Uh, what identity even means, um, especially you know these superficial markers of identity, um, and for me, I guess I've I've tried to peel back the layers of identity and just discover what it means to be human first and foremost, um, and then go from there. Um, but in terms of what it means to be Vietnamese, I think uh, it. Is something that has really defined my experience, especially being a Vietnamese refugee. My father was a former prisoner of war uh, who fought uh, on the South Side um, during the war. So, you know that that has really impacted our entire existence um, and the, the intergenerational trauma that he suffered, which you know can't quite be extricated from our experience of being human.
2: Can we talk a little bit about the subject of being Tu Chau? Because that's not really discussed much. You don't hear a lot about it in, you know, Vietnamese media or Vietnamese American media, or there's not a whole lot of discussion of who those people were. And I can say that because my family, um, my great grandfather is also from 100% uh, from that culture. So, um, but I'm like an eighth, but yeah. you're seven eighths of it. And can we talk a little bit about like who they are and what they were doing in Vietnam and...
1: Yeah, I mean, my my grandparents um, immigrated from China, um, so they they were born in China, and you know, just to escape the tribal warfare that was happening at the time, um, in the you know late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and so they they came over, and you know, a lot of them settled in in South Vietnamese regions. Um, like Vinlam, uh, and those areas. And they often, you know, experience a lot of discrimination. Um, and so my parents growing up experienced a lot of, you know, they were being called a lot of racial slurs in, you know, and being made fun of for speaking um, And so it's it's interesting because they experienced discrimination in Vietnam and then coming over to America our entire family experienced discrimination just for being Asian, and so it's just like just suffering from oppression for a very long time. It's, it's in our history.
2: And you know what's crazy? Uh, as I reflect on one of the stories in your book about your father being on the firing line for escaping, right? Was it like two guys? Yeah. To the one guy to the one guy to the right getting shot dead, and he's the only yeah. guy. I, I, I wonder if during that moment or after that moment, if there's any reflection going, wait a minute, not really from Vietnam, and I am like on the firing line being put to death because I was in the South Vietnamese army. I, did did he ever talk about that at all?
1: No, I mean, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure I was on his mind. Um because he often, he often likes to remind us, oh, we're, we're Chinese, you know, <laughs> with Zhou. Joe. Um, and then, so when I tried to ask him about the Vietnamese identity, I mean, he's, he's still, he's still very proud of his country. Um, he's proud of, you know, having served his country, but also, you know, that there are a lot of, complicated feelings there as you can imagine um so I, I don't know that's a good question i would love to really like pick his brain a little bit more but obviously it's also a touchy subject
2: yeah borders are bullshit though right yeah <laughs> country borders are just yeah.
1: yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's all arbitrary it's all mm-hmm. human made so um, yeah
2: <laughs> but yeah when i yeah. read that i was like uh how scary was it to be your father i mean to really survive that situation it's just so lucky
1: in many ways he was fortunate but obviously in many ways he was unfortunate you know he was drafted into the war he was only 16 um served for a time as a lieutenant and then had to serve almost seven almost well he served seven years in the actual re-education camps um, and was emaciated. He, they were the prisoners were fed, you know, a portion of a potato every day, um, and that was all they had to eat. A lot of a lot of prisoners died of you know malnutrition and disease, and you know he he almost died for uh, for escaping or, or having this plan yeah. to escape with his two um, comrades, I suppose, or, or uh, friends. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's scary enough for him to suffer still from daily nightmares.
2: And then I have friends or or people that says that ask me, you know, when will our stories of this trauma and this war, when when will we stop talking about that and move on? And I'd like to ask you, like, do you have fatigue talking about this? Because sometimes I get fatigued hearing about this over and over, daily right and editing it and just hearing the stories and i sometimes i want to evolve the podcast into like new newer subjects but we're here we're still lingering here and there's more writer of your uh, caliber coming out you know monthly we see like new writers coming out with high quality books that are talking about the trauma and the war and and coming out and growing from you know the last 45 50 years of of this American life. You know, do you think that it's close to the time that we're going to evolve out of this subject or how much longer are we needing to talk about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember um, what happened to us so that we can we can learn from the mistakes that were made in history um, and, and learn not to repeat them um but I'm really, you know, part of my story, a lot of it is talking about the war, but it also talks about how to heal from that trauma. Um, and so I, I do think that we are in a time of deep healing and it's not going to be overnight that we heal from this obviously. Um, I think healing is just an ongoing journey. Um, but I'm really glad to see, you know that the story is no longer a single story um, and it's not, present it from a western perspective you know where these stories are now ours to own and to tell and i'm glad that we are given the platform to do so
2: yeah and i am also really happy is not the word but to have read a modern story about a young girl who needed glasses right who couldn't see and you know that excited Mm -hmm. me because that's a modern day problem uh didn't have to be an it wasn't like really an immigrant well, or it was related because her father was like no 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 no, we're not doing that but it 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 just was a modern problem and here in, in in modern real life i mean that happened to you that was so uh it was delightful to read about it and to to see how you know it, it was just so heartwarming to me to to, to read that part of of that uh, of your story
1: Oh, thank you so much. That that really means a lot to me because growing up, you know, I, I didn't think that my story was believable because I didn't see myself represented in literature, in the media. I didn't see these types of problems being talked about. And so I, you know, as you know, I, I, I hid my problem for a very long time from the adults around me. I didn't think anybody would believe it. Um, and it took me a long time to even come to terms with what had actually happened and, and to put words on the paper. Um, and so, you know, I think one of my primary motivations for writing this story is so that, you know, if there is an, another little girl, another little boy um, out there who is suffering from a similar issue, that they can see themselves represented, you know, and they yeah. won't have to feel so alone.
2: How, how long were you in that world for, the, the blind world, like unable to see? <laughs>
1: Oh, gosh, for too long. Um, But I think it was, I mean, you know, I was uh, sent home in the third grade with a note from the nurse saying that I needed glasses. So, um, but, you know, it must have started in the second grade, maybe, you know, you know, I have no idea. Yeah. Right.
2: Exactly. Um, What you couldn't see, right?
1: Yeah. Especially if I just thought, though, this is normal. You know, it's when you're so young, you don't know what's normal and what's not normal. Um, Like somebody needs to tell you, if you're squinting, it's uh, the responsibility of adults around you to see that and say, "Hmm, maybe this child needs glasses, right? And so it was in the third grade when I received that letter, and I was, I couldn't see from the third grade to, I guess, my first year of college. Um, So I don't know, that's about 10 years, a decade um, of just nearsightedness. Whoa. And, you know, obviously it, it progressed, right? So in the third grade, I was still able to see the board in school if I sat in the front row. And then by middle school, I was starting to really not be able to see anything in high school. Forget about it. I just couldn't – I couldn't see anything, even if it was directly in front of me.
2: Holy shit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I you know, I couldn't even see myself in the mirror, um, which – presented like a whole different set of psychological issues it, it does something to you when you're unable to really um see who you are and see how you how you even age throughout the years
2: i i just can't imagine yeah, going yeah 10 years and it get getting progressively worse uh your your eyesight so how do you think your life changed once you i mean can you describe how your life changed once you put glasses on
1: well, you know, I, I put glasses on. So it was a, a teacher in the ninth grade, um, Mr. DeChunket. He, he was actually a four, an eighth grade teacher of mine. He, he taught me chess. Um, and a friend of mine who had uh, gone to the same high school as me, he told my teacher, you know, hey, Lee has a really hard time seeing and she's not telling anybody. And so that teacher reached out to me and said, Hey, like, if you need help, I will purchase you a pair of glasses. Um, And so, you know, I was really nervous. I thought I was betraying my parents, but at the same time really wanted to do well in school. And so I, you know, I went with him and it seemed like this really like shady thing that I was doing, (laughs) even though he was just getting me a pair of glasses. (laughs) Um, And so I, I would bring this pair of i was so grateful when i first put on glasses i just seeing the leaves on the trees i mean what an incredible experience i was like oh my god this is what trees look like i had forgotten you know um and but there was just so much guilt within me that i i took the glasses off immediately and, and i swore to myself i'll only use these glasses when it's like when i'm desperate when i really really need to see Um, so I would go to school, hide the glasses, put them on for a second to see notes and then try to memorize what I saw. Uh, but eventually my eyesight just deteriorated. You know, I think six months after receiving those glasses, my eyesight, my vision, um, or my prescription rather changed. And so things started to get blurry again. I started to get debilitating headaches again. And I was just too ashamed of myself to even reach out to my teacher to ask for help again um, or to even, you know, keep him abreast of the situation. And so I think by the 10th grade, those glasses were useless. And I didn't, I just didn't want to tell anybody. I thought the issue was me. I clearly, you know, something was wrong with me and I didn't want to trouble anybody anymore.
2: And you talk about a book that you read,
1: well, the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison.
2: The Bluest Eyes. I should know that. Um, w- when did you read that book?
1: So I, I read that in the 10th grade, I believe. Um, and oh my gosh, you know, I, this entire time I, I'm an avid reader and I'm just searching for myself within the pages. Um, and, you know, I could read because I could hold the book very close to my eyes and just read that way. And it wasn't until I read The Bluest Eye that I finally realize how powerful representation is now the bluest eye is a book about a little black girl who yearns for a new pair of eyes you know she thinks that if she can somehow get a hold of blue eyes it would make her um worthy as a human being um and here i am a little girl yearning for a new pair of eyes albeit for very different reasons but i was trying to define my humanity um, and trying to see my worth um, and when I read that book, it was the first book to make me cry. And I just remember thinking to myself, "Oh my goodness i I hope that one day I have the power to move somebody to tears. Like I hope that one day I have the power to tell my story, um, and for somebody else to 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 recognize themselves within my pages. And so that was sort of like when the seed uh, was planted of, of potentially becoming a writer.
2: And did you actively pursue this for the next umpteen years or did you have a discussion with your parents and they're like, no, 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 no. How did it go?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. Actually, you know, in, in high school, I went to the Bronx high school of science, um, very scientific math oriented. Um, but unfortunately science and math are subjects in which you really need to be able to see the board in order to do well in. Right. So, (laughs) I started to do really, I mean, I, I, I failed almost all my classes. Um, or I almost failed all my classes, rather. And English was really the only class that I was able to listen. I, was, I could hold the book up to my eyes, read the books on my own time. And then in class, I, we barely had to take notes. It was just discussion-based. So I started to do really well in English. So it was almost as if life mm. kind of placed me on this trajectory towards becoming a writer. Um, you know, I finally, I somehow miraculously made it to college and I, um, it was in college that my oldest brother, you know, during this whole time, he's away at college. He's not really aware of what's going on at home, but when he comes back from college and realizes, oh my goodness, like Lee still can't see as a gift, he purchased me a pair of contacts and said, here, like this way, mom and dad won't be able to tell that you're wearing glasses, you know, like use this in your first year of college to do better. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm in my first year of college and I actually I get a 4.0 um, and I decide to major in um, on a pre-med track in neuroscience because I, I'm I'm really fascinated by like how the brain works, you know, this mental illness, uh, mental health is a big theme in my memoir Um, for obvious reasons, you know, not just the PTSD that my father suffered from, but also the debilitating depression that I suffered from, from not being able to see for a decade (laughs) and being told that my experiences, my perception of reality was incorrect. Um, And so I'm I'm majoring in neuroscience, but I I don't do very well. I, I start to slip because I feel like I'm betraying my parents. I feel like I don't deserve the success that I had in my first year of college so I almost it it was you know an act of self-sabotage I stopped going to classes I I become really just I I spiral into my a a dark depression um and eventually I, I dropped out of school yeah so so my path towards becoming a writer was really you know it was it didn't start with writing it started with science and then neuroscience um and then when I dropped out I met somebody who convinced me to reapply to school, um, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, there's what school will accept me with a, a 2.0 GPA?" You know, I had totally I failed all of my classes, and um, she said, "You know, just try. What's the worst that can happen? They, the schools reject you, and you're still nothing worse can happen, right?" And out of the, I believe I applied to about eight to ten schools, and out of those schools, only one school accepted me and they accepted me on the strength of my essay. (laughs) They said, you know, we weren't going to accept you. Your grades, you know, are not great, but we decided to give you a chance because your essay was really special. So if you haven't considered majoring in writing, we recommend that you, we, you know, advise that you check it out. And so.
2: (laughs) What a weird turn of events to become a writer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) exactly I mean it's yeah
2: it's mind it's it's mind bending to think about
1: right yeah um but I yeah I don't know I don't know if this maybe it's just the way that I was raised um I was raised Buddhist um but I'm I'm also a deeply spiritual person and so sometimes I, I think about all the events in my life that have led me to where I am today and when you look back, it, it almost seems like all the dots connect, you know, to, to, to yeah. present this very complex tapestry of, of a life.
2: Fascinating. Now, during these years, you also have a lot of experience working as a nail tech in a, these nail salons, right? Right. I... I have a weird question. Um, I think about this (laughs) quite a bit. I am addicted to watching, um, uh, fights, uh, whether it's UFC sanctioned fights or, you know, world star or something star, uh, gang fights or, you know, just random street fights online. And sometimes when I watch the nail fights inside of nail salons that are captured on video, it's heartbreaking because obviously it's our people and it's it's just heart-wrenching and i know that you you you've spent time and i'm sure that you've come across a lot of that kind of physical conflict or people pay not paying and just getting up and leaving on the one hand um i have to separate myself from the enjoyment of watching fights but at the same time very uh being very mindful that this is a painful situation for somebody uh, on the nail side but do you Sometimes look at these things, or during the experience of it, think about like sometimes the the majority the sometimes the the fights or the disputes come from within our community because we are talking shit oftentimes, <laughs> right? We are talking shit about other people, um, and I can say this because you know I have a lot of family in the every all Vietnamese people have family in nail business and. You just know going in because we've all spent time in nail salons and you just know that a lot of shit talking happens on the side of the nail tech so that energy i think sometimes pervade the salon and it transfers over and we're not recognized we're not recognizing or cognizant of our behavior but what's your idea what's your thoughts on all of that
1: well that's a good question um you know I, i worked primarily with my mother um, in a, a nail salon that she bought. Um, and it was oftentimes just me and her. And my mother, she, she taught me never to trash talk anybody. She's always teaching me to actively practice kindness and compassion for others. Um, and so on the one hand, I totally can see how people? I mean, it's just like it's sort of embedded in our culture. It's very toxic, actually, <laughs> um, and it's it sort of harkens back to this idea that like hurt people hurt people, right? So we're we're coming from a position of being oppressed, and you know we we're sort of emulating that same form of oppression sometimes, and which is problematic, and it's something that should be talked about. Um, uh, and I think a lot of these fights can be prevented if there was more of an open line of communication. Right. Um, and, and, you know, just people learning to love one another, which seems, it's like, that's seems easy enough,
2: but. <laughs> yeah, but it's complicated. <laughs> but it's complicated. it's, it's complex. complicated.
1: Yeah, and there's always like, there's this sort of like us versus them mentality yeah. oftentimes. Um, but, you know, that said, my working in the nail salon with my, my mother has, was a really traumatic time for me. Um, because of, of how a lot of our clients, um, the way that they treated my mother for not being able to speak English properly. And so, you know, here I am, I'm, I grew up in America, you know, I came here at the age of three, I can speak perfect English and I'm working alongside my mother and, and seeing her struggle to speak to clients and seeing these clients degrade her and, and yeah. you know, say things to her that no child should ever hear and i'm trying to translate you know and and so i'm i'm trying to in a way preserve my mother's ignorance and telling her because she can't she she doesn't understand the insults that are being hurled at her and i can understand so i absorb all those insults for her mm. but i don't let her know you know and so that that was a really interesting time for me growing up um and trying to to navigate these really uh many times dangerous and, and toxic places um and navigate, you know, these people treating my mother in a way that uh, robs her of her humanity, simply because she's in a position of service, right? Um, and yeah. I also yeah. be experiencing that myself.
2: And this is going on daily, moment to moment, every day across this country. The yeah. insults, the... But it's not entirely a one-way street, too. You know, like you right. said, hurt people, hurt people, and so I think there's this dynamic of it's a hotbed of of you know just bacterial infection that is you know culturally going both ways constantly. Where you know some communities are rougher than other communities, some neighborhoods, some salons are placed in you know, difficult communities, and you know there's this buildup of of all of this uh, miscommunication and toxicity.
0: Yeah.
1: Absolutely, and I think, you know, I, I hope that we can evolve from that. You know, I, I hope that we, um, that we can see that we're we're fighting on the same side. You know, we're the same. We're all the same. Um, and the sooner that we can realize that, the sooner that we can, you know, open our arms wide and, and welcome one another um in in a, a healthier space, not not these spaces where like, you know, there's just it's a breeding ground for hostility and animosity towards one mm-hmm. another.
2: Yes. And it's it's very difficult to um kind of have our community understand that, you know, there's there's probably better ways, but with better ways comes a lot of discipline and learning and reprogramming and and restructuring the way we think about other cultures yes and it's not uh it's not an easy task when every day you're confronted with this energy of like the other right like these others and you in your mind you're thinking that you're right and it's so it's it it, that deprogramming would take i don't know i don't i i don't i don't have a lot of hope for it sometimes because I just know some of my family members are just like, they're, they're thick, they're dense and they just don't want to change. And they think that they're there, uh, and they're right all the time. And it's just like the other people are the wrong people. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to dwell on this, but it is a, a, a point of contention culturally that I think that, um, not often talked about. We see the videos that it shows up online in the news and stuff like that, but heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. But I think you're. I mean, you're doing an incredible job, just even like opening up the conversation and saying, "Hey, this is this is an issue. We have to talk about this," you know. Um, and I think, you know, the more that we can have these these open conversations, um, like there there is hope, it, 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 as bleak as it may seem sometimes. I think there are more and more we see every day more and more people being open to having these conversations, especially in the younger generation um so but that's the key right exactly that's
2: the key it's the younger generation and what does it all boil down to it's all words it's all like communication it's same in the political sphere i think nail shops political sphere it's all because there is a language problem there is an inability to understand fully what the other person is saying and you get this sort of like misinformation or you get this like weird communication with you and the client and all hell breaks loose because of our assumptions of what the other person is thinking.
1: Right, exactly, and and also, what what are we doing to like what energy are we putting forth to attract that? Right, um, you know, if if we're sitting in the nail salon and trash talking to somebody else. <laughs> right <laughs> it's like, and then we want to pick fights like oh you know why are they treating us this way well we kind of had it coming
2: um, no it's true it's yeah. so true yeah 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 i have family who are half salvadorian half vietnamese and they look and you know some some of the guys have like bald he- shaved heads they look like gangsters they'll yeah. roll in with their uh latino girlfriends into a vietnamese nail shop and like the older ones speak fluent vietnamese and you might not look like and they'll come back and they'll tell me like this what what happened in nail salon you know over the years it's constantly telling me these funny stories about what these women would say and it it goes both ways so we have to find a way to to change it um yeah it's it should be taught at the like the beauty schools too
1: oh absolutely yeah (laughs) but you know i mean like I feel like it, even with it, like within the culture Vietnamese people talk shit about Vietnamese people. <laughs> so that's also an issue, you know, it's like just so stop talking trash about other people. It's like um, and so like we've got to fix it within us and then, you know, and maybe then we'll decide not to do it for other people as well, but yeah. It's definitely a pervasive problem.
2: Yes. Let's switch uh, switch up the direction a little bit about uh, discipline. Um, you've talked about, you know, your writing career has not been a straight line. And it's not like, you know, you were at the writing table every day at 5 a.m. in the morning and you're just cranking out pages. That's not the way this artist life works. And what I've learned through sitting in this chair talking to a lot of writers and, and, and artists is it. Uh, Like a book, I think on average, what it seems like to me is on average, from when you start kind of getting the tingly fingers till the day you get it to a publisher, takes about eight to 10 years. Sometimes it's six years, but it's like the average is eight to 10 years. That is a phenomenal amount of strength of a human being to stick with something that long. Can you tell me about the journey of that time that, you know, it wasn't a straight shot for you?
1: Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's it was definitely even even once I got into um, college, when I, you know, reapplied to college and, and was given a second chance, um, I was I tried writing, and I, I majored in fiction, actually. Um, and I was, you know, I, I didn't really have too many hopes I just thought oh let me major in this hopefully I do well hopefully I don't drop out again this time um, you know and I thought so a lot of the stories that I, I came to class with were sort of loosely based on my life um, and you know my second to last year in college I uh, realized I didn't have enough credits to graduate so I took an outside course during the summer at NYU it's a course called Writers in New York, where you get to study with like actual writers. Um, and so I applied to the fiction department of the program and I quickly realized that it wasn't for me. And so I, I just asked the director of the program, like, is, it, is there room in like another department? And she said, well, you know, there's nonfiction. Um, you could just, there, there's still space. So why don't you hop over there? And so I did, and there I met Sayid Rafazade, who is an incredible memoirist. And not just an incredible memoirist, but an incredible professor. And he was just so engaged. And he clearly loved the craft. He loved talking about it. He loved mm-hmm. teaching it. And I thought, oh, you know, why don't I just, you know, reach out to him and email him some of what I was working on. Um, I, was, I was going to Columbia at the time. So what, what I was working on at Columbia. And he, um, he responded. He said, sorry, you know, this is not a workshop it's a seminar and so I won't be able to read these pages, but why don't you come to my office hours and we'll discuss your goals as a writer. Wow. And so I thought, okay, yeah, sure. That's, I'll take that. And so uh, I meet with him and I tell him that I, I'm hoping to one day write a book that's loosely based on my life. And he said, what's so special about your life? You know, why do, why do you think it, it warrants an entire book? And I tell him, you know, well, a refugee, refugee, came here when I was three, I did sweatshop labor as a child. um, And I was doing nail salon work at the age of 12. And onward, I couldn't see all these things, you know, Uh, basically my memoir in a nutshell. And he says, Wow, like Lee, this is this is an incredible story, you should, you know, go with it. Um, I think I think you've got something really special. And so I go home, that was really incredible feedback. I was so motivated to work on this. And the next I think the next day, maybe, or the next week, his agent emails me and says, Dear Lee, your professor Saeed, who we represent, forwarded us your pages. Here's a contract. We would love to represent you. And so I was like, wait, what? I, first of all, I was so green that I didn't even know what an agent was. I thought it was a scam. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> Um, but I I, so I reached I quickly reached out to Saeed and he's like no I I read your I ended up reading your pages after our meeting and I thought this is great and yeah okay
2: let's stop right here (laughs) (laughs) because I have another question that I wrote down like much later in the interview
1: yeah
2: that you know there's a lot of people that write that don't get published and you know to get that sort of chance right you're not even done with school yet you're not even out, yeah. you're not even you haven't even produced anything yet yeah
1: and nor was i really even thinking of like wow. you know what my career would be i was just like i'm just trying to not drop out of school <laughs> that's all i was yeah wow.
2: man this uh road in life uh whatever you choose to do there's so much that people don't talk about that have to do with luck
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I can, you know, attest to that because I obviously I feel like I've been very unfortunate in my life, but I, I'm also incredibly fortunate, you know, the people that I've met along the way, I mean, they're responsible for uh, a, a lot of my success today. And I'm so, I really, I'm so grateful to Saeed for, for, you know, it just, just passing my pages along to his agent and making that connection Um so, so, yeah, and that's how, and so I, I, grad, I actually, I meet up with um, his agent's co-agent, her name is Sarah, and, you know, she tells me this is going to be a memoir, not a novel, because it's a real story, so why would you, you know, it, like, it would mean a lot to people if it were uh, depicted as a true story. And so I said, sure, and I asked if she could wait for me, to, for, for me to graduate. Because I had one year left and I didn't want to derail my focus. I didn't, you know, I didn't want the past to repeat itself. Um, And then as soon as I graduated, she emailed me. She said, let's get to work. Wow. So, and I said, okay, like, what do we do? And she's like, well, let's, let's work on a proposal. Um, the, The great thing about nonfiction in the publishing industry is that you don't need a full manuscript to sell the rights to your manuscript. Um, you just need a proposal. So a sort of synopsis of the story you're going to tell, you know, breakdown of chapters, all these things. And um, so we work on that together for about six months. So from, from May to November. Um, And yeah, so in November, six months after I graduate, I received my book deal. Um, Yeah. So so that, that, I mean, that in and of itself was an incredible journey
2: okay so you get the book deal you sign the ink and it dries and how long from that point to when you finally get it finished and ready and it's on the the bookshelves
1: oh okay so 2014 december of 2014 is when i signed the book deal um i signed the contract and then it the final manuscript is accepted in june of 2020 (laughs) so (laughs) so that's yeah and then from there from June then you've got like the whole copy editing you know you've got a line by line editing all the grammar has to be you know correct Um, then you've got to prepare you've got to choose a cover you've got to um, ask writer other authors for blurbs Uh, and then you've got to publicize the book so get it you know, get some buzz generated around it. Um, And then I was published in June of 2021.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. Seven years.
1: Yeah, exactly. Seven years overall.
2: Now that means that whoever your agent or the people that are involved in backing you up, they have to have extreme tenacity as well. Right.
1: Oh, oh my goodness. My agent is a shark. I I love her. I really, really love her. Um, But she, oh gosh, you know, she's not somebody you want to cross, basically, <laughs> because she's, you know, really focused. Um, she knows exactly what she's doing, and you know, she she really negotiated an incredible contract for me, um, especially as a first time author. And you know, my my track as an author is a little different because a lot of times um, before you get published uh, with a, a publisher. You're often published in magazines, you know, you publish short stories yeah. and articles, but I wasn't published anywhere. I'm, I'm literally, you know, so people are taking a huge risk on me. Yeah. Um, and she, she was able to still negotiate a, an incredible contract.
2: But, but during those six years, right? Like, there's got to be like dark nights and, you know, cold mornings, right? Like, where the fuck am I going? Am I going to finish this? Oh, it, it, <laughs> can you talk about that?
1: Oh, God, yeah. Sometimes, you know, people uh, in, a, in many of these interviews, people are like, "Well, Tell us about your process. And I so wish that I could just say, oh, yes, I woke up at 5 a.m. every day. I was super disciplined, you know, and I, I made sure to write down a thousand words before my morning coffee or blah, blah, blah. Um, but that was so far from the truth. I spent so many nights uh, and mornings in a corner of my room crying, pulling my hair out, you know, just obviously there's, a, there's so much trauma to unpack. To, to unpack in this and um, you know I'm literally writing this story and I had just I, i'm I'm coming out of the darkness still, you know I, it's not that I've had like an incredible amount of distance to have processed my past you know I'm, I had just dropped out of college you know I, I'm still suffering from reeling from the trauma of um, not being able to see for years, right. And so, I had to find a way to to write this story. Um, in a way, seven years sounds like a long time, but in terms of writing a memoir, it's fairly quick because I, I needed that time to process like an entire lifetime of of uh, of a difficult life. Um, so,
2: what was there a time where you're like, "Fuck this! I'm not going to be able to finish."
1: Oh man! Like every day,
2: really. <laughs> Every single
1: day. I mean, you know, I think part of, because of the way that I grew up um, and just being told that uh, I was always wrong and being a lot of gaslighting, um, I I suffer from enormous self-doubt. And and maybe I think self-doubt is just normal in the creative process, but Mm -hmm. I, I think it's like. For me, it's tenfold because of, of how I grew up. The, the, I
2: still feel that way about <laughs> yeah. myself. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. Um, so there wasn't a single day when I thought, oh, my God, like, I think I think they made a mistake. I think they, you know, like, maybe what I, what I turned into them was a, a fluke. Um, they somehow saw potential in it, but I'm not actually cut out to be a writer. Um, but you know what? You just keep plugging away. Because at the end of the day, I thought, well, what else can I do?
2: Mm-hmm. I literally can't do
1: anything else. Yeah. I majored in writing, so.
2: Do yeah. do you uh still go through that now after that first book is you know House of Sticks is out? Do you still go through that as a writer?
1: Absolutely. You wow. know, I'm I'm embarking on uh you know the process of writing a second book. Um I'm in October I'm going away to an artist residency, the Malay uh Arts Residency to work on that book and every day I'm like oh god like I, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, um, I, again, it, I think it's, you know, imposter syndrome. Like, yeah. and I, I sometimes think oh, like maybe I was able to get the first book published because it's a true story, but now I'm writing a novel. Like, am I cut out to be a novelist? You know, it's.
2: So can we talk about what you're writing?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, it's an, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. It's about an agoraphobic mother daughter duo um and you know the daughter is coming of age and is is beginning to be really curious about the outside world but she harbors a lot of fear that her mother has instilled within her of the outside world because they're both agoraphobic um and so uh, she she also has a lot of pent-up resentment towards her mother for even like you know, creating this, this environment for her. Um, But eventually she, one day she receives letters from, from someone. These letters are addressed to her, but she doesn't know who this person is. Uh, And they strike up this correspondence. um, They become pen pals. And this person basically invites her to, to tell stories. Now she, one thing, her mother, another thing her mother has instilled in her is a love of literature. That was always her key to Mm -hmm. the outside world. Um, and so, and she sort of secretly wants to be a writer. Um, and so she's, she's writing these stories, basically en- enjoying the correspondence until one day a letter arrives telling her that, you know, they're, this is the last letter I'm going to send you. You're going to have to continue writing these stories on your own. You know, she feels That's deeply so betrayed. Cool. She's like, oh my God, you know, I thought we were friends. I, you know, and she's angry. But one day she realizes that there's an address on the letters and that she can find this person. So that becomes a catalyst for her to step out of her home for the first time and, and, and really explore this outside world for real. Um, and I don't know if that was articulate yep. <laughs> at all. but <laughs>
2: Yeah, hit all the story beats, your, your excellent pitch. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I love it. I love this story. Where uh, did you get inspired from the um, uh, the, the the idea of the, the the structure of the story?
1: You know, that's growing up. So I was really deeply interested in philosophy growing up, um, and I read this book called Sophie's World by Justine Garder, a Norwegian writer. I believe, um, and it was sort of like a crash course in philosophy, and it was all about this little girl who receives, you know, these this little postcards from somebody completely anonymous, um, and it turns out a philosopher was corresponding with her and teaching her, basically giving her a crash course in philosophy, um, and it was it was a very the structure to that story is very interesting because she ended up being she and this philosopher were characters in the book and they were trying to escape being characters in that book. Wow. I was, Oh my goodness. Like I, I think about that story all the time and I just, I feel like it's informed a lot of how I view the world. You know, sometimes I feel like there is a puppet master and I'm sort of just the puppet, you know? So I, I I wanted to play around with this epistolary form and and see where it'll take me with this particular story.
2: Yeah. It it, it, sometimes like as artists, we're just sort of like the vessel for the muses, uh, the gods. The
1: yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah, and just sort of surrendering to that, uh, to that kind of that principle allows us to kind of like not be so personable and not 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 personable, but not be so precious with the the work that we're doing. Because yeah, we're some another realm of, of of creation that's we're really out of control. It's not in our control.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, when I don't know if you feel this, but um, when you get into that flow state, and you're just—it's something uh, you feel like there's an invisible hand just guiding you along. Um, and sometimes you're not even aware of what you're doing, but what you eventually produce is something that is beautiful, you know. Um, and I, 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 live for those moments—those moments that really take my breath away. Um, and oftentimes, it's like four a.m. in the morning yeah. <laughs> when that happens. Yeah.
2: It's dazzling to see what comes out of your fingers when you're like writing and you know, step back after a few hours after that flow state to to witness it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think of it as like being in the avatar state. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Avatar the Last Airbender. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, Speaking of which, um, I, I, had some moments in the garment business with my parents uh i grew up in a factory as well and but not you know doing the actual work i when i was 15 they got into the garment side because we were slow in our window coverings business side and i made deliveries when i was like 14 15 in a van with my brother and we'd go drop off stuff to chinatown um and I, i can recount some crazy some crazy stories and i was wondering in your experience, um, because this is something that's not happening anymore. I mean, uh, child labor, maybe, but it's not as normal as it was when we were growing up, right? Uh, in immigrant uh, communities. I'm sure it still happens. But were, were there some uh, stories or some uh, times that you were just like, you, you were not... you you're not really in it and you're just like step taking a step out and going, wait a minute, this is like weird. This is your normal kids shouldn't be doing this. Or were you always in the kind of that machine thinking where you're like, Oh, I'm just doing what I have to do. And this is just part of my responsibility.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a child, I thought everyone was doing it. (laughs) Yeah. It was so normal to me. Yeah. Um, And I remember in middle school, just uh, my friend invited me to her house, her apartment. And it was the first time that I had gone to somebody else's apartment. And so I I walk in and I'm looking around and I ask her, you know, where, where are all your work materials? <laughs> and she's like, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, you know, like the, the, the fabrics, the, the the work materials, you know, like the, the ties and the cummerbunds. She's like, she's like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know work materials. And so I think it like, it dawned on me like, oh, wow, like other kids don't do this, you know. Um, but even then, I didn't realize that it was a problem, um, you know, in the seventh grade, my social studies teacher, you know, she took us to the auditorium and taught us about, like she, she put on this documentary about basically child sweatshop I'm labor up. in Bangladesh, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm watching this and I'm just horrified. I'm like, oh my God, how could they put these children to work, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> and I had no idea. You know, I, I even started this against child labor club in middle school you know, in response to the outrage that I felt. And I, I was just so far removed from my own reality. And it took me quite a few years to realize like you were part of the same, like you were also a child a chocolate bird, you know? Um, it just, it had a different flavor simply because we were in America, right? So it, like, it, it doesn't register that this is a possibility in a country like America. And yet here I was in Queens doing child sweatshop labor at the age of three, no less, you know, I started from, from three and, and to, to age of 12. So.
2: But that being said though, um, looking back, would you do it if you had a chance to like wave a magic wand, would you, would you not do that? Would you extricate yourself from that eight years or nine years of being a child labor?
1: That is a great question. Um, you know, I don't know because I I feel like so much of what makes a person who they are is, you know, what they experience. Um, and it, it has taken me a long time to accept who I am and to love who I am. And now that I'm here, you know, I I think about all those nights that I spent with my family members, yes. you know, with my brothers on, on in yeah. the middle of the living room, on the floor, making these ties and these cummerbunds. And we really... Develop such a strong, unbreakable bond with one another, and I would not—I would not trade that for the world. You know? that's why I
2: asked the question.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, yes, child labor is an inherent evil. At the same time, it was the only thing that kept you know food on the table, a roof over our heads. Right. Um, we didn't receive enough government assistance to to truly um, pull us through the hard times, and so we, in a sense, we're very deeply grateful for this sweatshop labor that we, could, we would have
2: find, And and reading your book, I just imagine, because I went through sort of like that with the window coverings business with my brother, my mom and dad and uncles. We was always around people. We were always just being social with uh, the people in the factory. We had these um, old soldiers that uh, came in the, in the, on the boat wave and they, they would eat out of their what we call a gaman I, I i forget what what the english it, it's like a three stack container oh yes, yes. the metal mm-hmm. i don't know what the, it's probably a french word that that, that came in but it's gig gaman and uh-huh. they take everybody you know five or six guys would go out to the backyard and take out their gaman and then we could you know they would let us try what their wives prep for them and, yeah. you know, I remember being eight, nine years old and, you know, they would eat and then they would smoke and they would sit around and talk shit. Those <laughs> were fucking precious moments of my life. As I read yeah. your book, I, I thought about those those times where, like, I would never give away, give up those uh, experiences. And it was a tough time, I think, you know, as immigrants, you know, we, they, they worked very hard, but there's some beauty in that. There's a just a beauty in that culture that, um, that we, we you know, I... I wouldn't trade it for the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we made the best of what life handed to us. Yeah. Um and you know, here we were, we were doing sweatshop labor, but we were also like I was I was playing games with my brothers, you know, with like the buckles, you know, we were trading buckles and and you know, using the pieces to make chess pieces sometimes. It was just really we were able to be creative. And you know, as children, you children are just relentlessly um curious. Right. And they view life through this sort of lens of wonder. Um, Everything is a miracle to us. And so I I really wanted to infuse that sense of wonder into our experience, as bleak as it may seem. um, But we we were happy during that time.
2: Why do you think some writers get signed and some don't? Uh, is it the quality of the writing? Is it thematic things? Is it genre focus? Is it luck? I mean, what, in your experience now, after all these years, gets writers signed or gets talent onto onto the screen or get them onto, you know, producers for, to do music? What is it about artists that, in your opinion, gets them to sort of this official place where you get signed and you, you move on to the next level?
1: Oh, that, you know, that's such a good question. I honestly think it's all a crapshoot. (laughs) Like, you know, it's, it's totally, I think a majority of it is luck because, you know, sometimes we see, um, you know, I see a lot of literature that gets published and I'm like, how did this get published? (laughs) And that seems mean to say, but then I'll read, you know, work from, from people. And I think, why is this not published? It's incredible. Um, And so I I think there are a lot of factors that play into, you know, um, how a manuscript is chosen, right, for publication. I think it depends on what's going on in the world at large, right? Like, does this story fit into, you know, what people demand, you know, in their, in the art that they consume? Um, And then it, it depends on, you know, what agents are looking for, what editor, like their tastes. Um, and then people who are uh, depends on who you know too. Your network, people who are like super savvy in in terms of how how they navigate social media. Even um, you know these days, and, and the landscape has changed drastically from e- just these past few decades. You know, um, some agents won't even sign with an author unless they have like a, a, a particular platform, right, or mm-hmm. particular size yeah. of the platform. So. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell what gets published and, and what doesn't.
2: Now you are uh, part of this, uh, literary canon li- literary, like new writers. Um, not new, but I mean the last decade of, of, of guys like, uh, Tran, Saigon, uh, Things We Lost the Rotter, uh, Eric Nguyen, Fortunes of Jaded, uh, Women, it's a new book with Carolyn Nguyen, and of course, Ocean and Vietan Wynne. but I think in order to break into like the the real big mainstream where like a lot of people in America or the world is reading um to get the like the bigger numbers where do you think writers vietnamese writers would be heading to get to like vitan Nguyen with the sympathizer it's it's a it's it's cultural, but at the same time, there's themes that are like massive or ocean Vuong. Like, do you think that we have much longer of a runway in terms of memoirs, like yours or Saigon, or do you think, uh, you know, now is going to be the new age, like the new, like the new book that you're writing? I think it's it's a wonderful departure from the cultural memoirs. But you know, where where do you think we we are on the spectrum of like sort of moving out of memoirs about our cultural, you know, past? Uh, and, and moving into, like, broader waters.
1: Yeah, you know, I was just at uh, Carolyn Wynne's, um book talk yesterday at, at uh, with Little Saigon Creative uh, mm-hmm. in Seattle, um, and she was talking about sort of, uh, you know, veering away from talking about trauma, and so I'm really excited to read The Fortunes of Jaded Women. Um, so ready to, to sink my teeth into it, but I think we're we're at the the very beginning. I think it's starting already. You know, we're 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 healing as a people, and the and the the newer gener, the younger generation, are um, looking at life through very fresh eyes, and so I think the 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 path is already set, um, uh, or is already being paved for, um, just stories that, um, are addressing broader broader themes
2: i love to hear that yeah the addressing broader themes it's yeah it's so great to hear that from you and um you know knowing that there there are i mean we just can't like talk about our own cultural stories forever but it's definitely needed to heal and i think a good 20 years of like that sort of you know two decades of uh, of this continuing work on cultural memoirs and and i ask because i kind of want to move out of that space sometimes you know i get burned out you know thinking about Mm -hmm. all this cultural talk and i want to move into like new stories like what you're writing about and i can't wait to have you back on you know when that book is published you know
1: thank you so much and 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 thank you for for supporting um you know different voices too i think it's it's like I said, um, you know, I'm I'm really excited about um, just being a writer at this time, especially being a Vietnamese writer. Um, you know, growing up, I didn't see myself represented, so now I'm I'm I want to be that voice of representation. Um, and uh, yes, I did start with a memoir, and that memoir did address, you know, themes of. The war into generational trauma, which I, I still think it's necessary. It's necessary for that to be an ongoing conversation, right? Um, because there there are just scores of people who still have not healed. Um, so I think there there's space for both types of stories, um, or, or for all all types of stories, so that we we can represent the the wider spectrum of humanity.
2: Yeah, and then also this is another thing that I heard in an interview that you did was. Uh, this idea of going back in the past and writing new sort of uh, a new twist or new perspective on historical. So here's what I wanted to ask you. Um, In a previous interview that you did, uh, you spoke about Jung and attacking that story, right? Like bringing that story to life, which is amazing. Um, But then the bronze drum came out, right? So how do we... um, how do how do writers know when another writer is working on the same project? And then you know if you're so invested like let's say you did 3 years on that book and you're working on that journey. And then all of a sudden the bronze drum comes out and you're working on Jung. How do where does that put you uh and how is there a database? I mean, how do you know what projects are like kind of brewing out there and you know where's yeah. that put you as a writer and your time that you invested in a story like Jun.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When the, the Ron's drum came out, I thought, Oh my God, I wanted to be the first person to talk about Jun. But you know, I, how many stories do we have about World War II, World War One, the Holocaust? Mm. You know, I, I think there is this sort of um, scarcity mindset where there, there can only be one. You know, whenever you're a person of color or a minority, it's like, oh, they can Mm -hmm. only be one of this story, and I I just refuse to accept that. Um, And so, I'm going to tell my story of Hai Jung in my own way, um, and I hope that there's room for me. You know, or, or not, not that I hope, but I, I um, will make sure that there is room for me.
2: That's um, a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's an abundant mindset. It's a beautiful answer. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right because I do want to. See what the other side of uh, Hai Ba Chung's story is too. That, and from a female who, a Vietnamese female, I want to see it instead, you know, like this is came from Phong Nguyen, you know, uh, a Vietnamese American man. I'd love to yes. see, you know, where it comes from, um, from a Vietnamese writer.
1: Yeah. yeah no, I, w- I would, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, it. I'm also looking forward to reading The Bronze Drum. I want to celebrate, you know, Phong Nguyen's success as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think there, there's, like I said, there's room for, for both.
2: It's great it's he He did a great job knocked it yeah. out yeah i'm looking
1: forward to
2: it yeah i would love to hear your version one day too so lee thank you so much today it's uh it was such an invigorating conversation and um you know got to get some peeks into your the way you think and thank you so much
1: thank you yeah i feel like i could have just talked to you for hours <laughs> Yes,
2: <laughs> but, yes. Yeah, well, I, I
1: really it's such an honor to be on your podcast i i've listened to a lot of a lot of your episodes and I, i've loved them all you yeah, really incredibly thoughtful questions. So thank you for this mm-hmm. opportunity.
2: Yeah, thank you for the kind words. And, and let's get back on after you get that uh, the next, the second book out. We'd love to hear more about it.
1: Absolutely. I'll send you a copy as soon as it's, you know, off the presses. <laughs>
2: oh, wonderful. Thank you, Lee.
1: All right. Thank you. Okay. Take care.
2: Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.